So you mean to tell me you've never heard of the TV show Rugrats? What? Okay, here's a quick summary. Sorry y'all, I have to explain to my friend the TV show Rugrats real quick. It was a group of babies who parents basically did a horrible job of watching them. They would get into so much mischief and no one would ever know. There was a core group of baby characters. One baby, Tommy, he had about three strands of hair. He was the leader. There was a set of twins, Phil and Lil, that you could only tell apart by who had the barrette on them. Sometimes they would switch who had the barrette just to confuse people. There was a nerdy baby named Chucky who was afraid of everything. And they were all bullied by this girl called Angelica. She bullied everyone except a black kid named Susie. She knew not to mess with Susie Carmichael. That was the one kid she knew not to pick on. That's the basic premise of Rugrats. We're gonna have to watch an episode later on YouTube or something. I'll give you some more information on Rugrats later, but I gotta get into this podcast. So what's up, healthy people? Welcome to another episode of On Call with Dr. Rennie. Today, I'm going to break up this COVID talk that I've been doing the last couple of weeks and discuss the road that it takes to become a physician. Everyone knows it's not easy to become a doctor. However, what is the process to become one? The road is long, rough, and rugged. I'm going to break it down into three stages. The stages are what usually happens, but can have some variation depending on people, schools, and other items. Stage one. First, you have to go to college and earn a bachelor's degree. You can get a degree in anything. Most people major in biology because it involves the study of life. However, many people get a degree in other fields, including chemistry, engineering, music, and other majors. Yet, there are certain core classes that everyone must take before applying to medical school. These include certain biology, chemistry, physics, and math classes. Studying the trombone exclusively for four years won't get you into medical school without taking those core classes. It may get you into a band with Bruno Mars, but not into medical school. Hey, Bruno Mars, that's my boy. Okay, I didn't know you like Bruno Mars in the voice. Yeah, man, I love me some Bruno Mars. Hey, 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 I got a condo in Manhattan. Baby girl was happening. Okay, in a voice, yep, you're surely offbeat and cannot sing. All right, go back in your corner, go back in your corner. You must complete those core classes that I mentioned to have a good knowledge foundation before medical school. You have to have a good science and chemistry foundation as well as mathematics. Most people apply to medical school and receive an acceptance letter during their senior year in college but some people apply later and get accepted for different reasons. For example, myself, I got accepted into medical school after I completed my master's degree program. So I have a master's in biology. I have three degrees. I have my undergraduate degree, I have my master's degree in biology, and I have a medical degree. So I'm a little smart, so I have three degrees. Proceeds to pop collar. Stage two, most medical schools have a four-year program. During the first two years of medical school, students generally only take classes. They take core classes in anatomy, pharmacology, physiology, and other classes. Medical students are rarely working in a hospital during the first two years. In years three and four, medical students learn different specialties in a hospital setting. These specialties include cardiology, surgery, pediatrics, and many more. The exposure to these specialties usually helps medical students decide their area of focus. Everyone coming into medical school doesn't necessarily know what they're going to specialize in. A lot of people change their minds. 
For example, I came into medical school, wanted to do dermatology, and then I think I switched to ophthalmology, wanted to do emergency medicine. So my mind changed a whole bunch of times and I ended up at the end doing family medicine, which exposes me to so many different things. So I got a little bit of everything, which I feel like I have been searching for. During these four years of medical school, students take many tests. These are school administered tests, as well as national tests that all students must take. The multitude of tests and retaining vast amount of information for these tests is one of the most difficult parts of medical school. Medical school is often described as trying to drink water through a fire hose. So much information is coming at you at one time. That's what the water represents and you're just trying to basically take it all in. That's why it's described as drinking water through a fire hose. The fourth year of medical school is when students apply to residency. Residency is essentially on the job training because you can't go straight from the classroom to operating on people's brains. So medical students apply to a residency program of interest and hopefully get accepted. For example, if you want to be an emergency room doctor, you apply to an emergency medicine residency program. If you want to become a family medicine physician like myself, you apply to a family medicine residency program. At the end of this episode, I'll explain how you get matched into a residency program. It's very interesting and something that most people don't even realize what we go through to get matched into a program. So now we're at the last stage, stage three of what it takes to become a physician. Stage three, once a person finishes medical school and enters residency, they now have the title of a doctor. They are also labeled a resident. This means that they are still in training phase and aren't licensed in their specialty yet. Therefore, residents aren't like doctor rich. I know people always like, oh, you're a doctor now, you made it. Like, nah, residents at that time, they still don't have like quote unquote doctor money and they are a doctor, but they're not licensed yet. Once again, like I said earlier, Residency is on-the-job training. We're trying to learn the things for our particular specialties, such as family medicine, emergency medicine, becoming a neurosurgeon. That's where you learn all those skills during residency. The length of time in residency can vary. For example, a family medicine residency is usually three years. To become a general surgeon, that residency program is approximately five years. So let's do the math. Say you wanna be a general surgeon. We're gonna start off from high school. If a person graduates from high school at age 18, then goes straight to college for four years, they will be 22 when they graduate college. Then add an additional four years for medical school, which would make them 26 years old after graduating medical school. So yay, they're a doctor, but they still have to go to residency. So we're doing general surgery residency, which is a five-year program usually. After five years in residency, for general surgery, that person will be 31 years old when they are finally finished with everything. And that's if they didn't have any breaks and just went straight through from high school to college to medical school to residency. They will be 31 years old when they finally complete everything. And not everyone necessarily goes down this path. People take breaks, they get graduate degrees like I did, they take some time to have a family so not everyone finishes like at the same time frame that's a lot of schooling and training to get to that point you have to be mentally and physically strong to get through all of that shout out to my tagline that i always give out so that's the road to become a physician 
This week on the podcast, I have Cindy Wilson. Cindy Wilson is a Korean American from Jackson, Mississippi. Cindy is a graduate of Jackson State University where she graduated with her bachelor's in psychology and master's in counseling. She also attended Bellhaven College where she received her MBA. Cindy currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia as an author, international speaker, and social impact strategist. I want to have Sydney on to discuss what's been going on in the Asian community. If you don't know what's been going on in the Asian community, you obviously have been living under a rock. There's been an increase in violence directed at the Asian community across the nation since the COVID crisis has begun. Consequently, I want to bring her on to discuss what's been going on in the Asian community and how we can combat hate against Asians. Cindy has a real unique story. She was born in Korea, adopted by a black military family, and was the original third member of the group of 3LW. <laughs> okay, that was a lie. The last thing was a lie, but the first two things are true. The first two things are true. She even has a book out about her upbringing called Too Much Soul, where she discusses what it was like being raised by a black family in the South. We'll get into a little bit about her background on this episode, but I'll make sure to bring her back one day to discuss her book fully. So let's get into the interview with Sydney Wilson, aka Asian Southern Belle. So welcome to the podcast, Sydney, my book mentor who has given me so much great advice along my book journey. She's always been willing to answer my questions that I've sent her. So welcome to On Call with Dr. Randy. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Randy. And thanks for giving me my credit because, you know, when people make it big. They don't like to, you know, acknowledge or, or give credit to the little people. So I appreciate that. <laughs> You're definitely not the little people. Definitely not. But yeah, I always make sure to give you credit when I talk to other people about my book. And I'm like, OK, this is kind of one of the templates that I've found or who I've reached out to that's always kind of been helpful. So I always want to make sure to Shout you out and tell you thank you. I love it. I love it. Well, you are more than welcome. Appreciate it. So you kind of touched on it earlier about feeling like you've always kind of had a target on your back. So what is it like as an Asian woman to basically go through life feeling like you have a target on you? Me as a black male, I know I feel like sometimes I have a target on me the way I look just being tall or just wearing a hoodie. So different justifications that I have to make as an individual. So for those who don't know, what is it like being an Asian woman having a target on your back? Yeah, I'll just speak to to my personal experience. You know, having a Black family, I would say it's not as exhausting as uh, some of the situations that like my family, you know, has had to go through, like, because that's like a daily struggle like mm-hmm. you know like when people see the color of your skin and this you know um uh, and for some for some people black people it's not but like a lot of you know people in my family and friends like it is you know mm-hmm. that's their reality quite often to where it's like hearing the stories all the time and what they have to go through all the time like i, I can only imagine just how exhausting that is but I, i'll say from my experience as an asian woman Really having to go through that a lot at a young age, again, it impacted my identity or the issues that I have with myself when it comes to identity. And so I had to fight really hard to get to the place where I'm at now to finally be accepting and embrace like who I am and not care what other people think. But I would say what has happened more recently 
I knew when I heard and not, not even knowing the increase of racial violence or hate against Asian people that started happening last year. But I knew as soon as I heard Kung flu, China virus, those words and and how knowing how words empower either love or hate. I knew when I heard those words that that put a target on my back. And, you know, it happened around the time where the pandemic happened. And I remember when I would hear the narrative and, and like people saying those things, I was like, here we go. So it just like, for me, it triggered that trauma. And for a lot of my friends, it triggered that trauma, you know? And then uh, I just remember like, the only place you could go to at the beginning of the pandemic was the grocery store. And I remember going to the store and thinking, should I put on shades or should I wear a cap? Like, so people, you know, to kind of hide, like, so people can't see my eyes. Like you could put a mask on, they can still see your eyes and it makes you a target. Mm -hmm. um, but I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. But then, all right, so what are you going to do if somebody says something to you? And then, you know, worse off, what are you going to do if somebody touches you, you know, like physically tries to harm you? And like, for me, it just depends. Like, sometimes I'm so exhausted where it's like, you know, I like, I have nothing to say. I'm just going to keep going, you know, like, I just, let me just keep the peace, take my ass home and call it a day. You know, like I have days where it's like, I ain't a killer, but don't push me. Like if you come at, <laughs> it depends on my mood. And if you come at me, I might come right back at you and like not care. And then, you know, like, again, we don't live back in the 19, early 1900s or whatever. You know, it's like people of color now, like, we're not going to be quiet. Yeah, I mean, uh -huh. again, it depends. Like, all right, is this, how much harm is this going to put me in or whatever? You know, like we tend to, you know, know how to quickly assess the situation and then decide whether or not it's a, it's a battle we want to fight or not. But I, I'll say I do that. And then sometimes, you know, it's like, again, like it triggers like what I had to experience growing up. And it's like, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not going to back down. Like, you're not going to, you know, call me out or just feel entitled to say whatever you want to say to me and think I'm not going to like say something back, you know, or mm -hmm. like, God forbid you touch me, like windmill action in full effect. Let's go. <laughs> um, it's a windmill action. <laughs> Full effect. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like, you know, being an Asian woman now and then just what happened with the shootings, that was another thing, like being an Asian woman and it was like hearing the police say he was having a bad day. Uh -huh. You're like, are you freaking kidding me? Do you know how many bad days I've had? And it's yeah. like, I open up a bottle of wine. I go to somebody's happy hour. Like, I don't go shooting up a spa or anything you know if i have a bad day right um right. and so then how did, you, how did you hear about the shooting well so that was interesting because i would say with everything that's been going on in the asian community my company had a call on monday afternoon and it was like sharing what's been going on other people asian people in our workplace community were sharing their stories at the workplace or outside of the workplace. So, I mean, I can relate to all of those stories, you know, again, not having even grown up, you know, in an Asian home and just how it just triggered me emotionally. So I was just like mentally and emotionally exhausted. 
So then Tuesday happens, I'm laying on my couch and then all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up and I'm trying to get my real housewives on. Like, I don't want to think about all this stuff that's going on. And people are like, oh my gosh, are you okay? What's going on in Atlanta? And this, this and that. And I'm like, what the hell? And I'm like, what? What are you mm-hmm. talking about? Put it on the news. Mm-hmm. So I put it on the news and I see the shooting and I just lose it. Like emotion. I was like, I couldn't take it. And then again, like hearing what the police officer said and then hearing, especially when they said um, that he had a sex addiction. And so this is how he eliminated that. And being an Asian woman, we didn't even have to pick up the phone, text each other, call each other. Like you could ask any Asian woman, like those two things are not mutually exclusive because we already know how Asian women are fetishized and very like hypersexualized, you know, with men, like not, I mean, Asian women and women of color, you know, but how we're like often treated as more of like a sexual object than like a human being. So it was like hearing that, like, but you can't call it a hate crime. That is, those both go together. Like, mm-hmm. and them saying that shows the lack of education and ignorance that they have against, that they don't know about the Asian community and like often how Asian women are objectified and just the Asian community othered and very invisible, you know? So it just kind of puts us back in that, you know, like, other kind of like, you know, so it's like he decided to do this because it was for his own good, you know, and just, just, yeah, very sad and just very dishonoring of those lives lost, dishonoring of the community, because it's like now, because you're not calling it what it is and, and speaking truth to it, now you're causing trauma and you're not allowing for proper healing of this situation. So like, Literally last week, I I probably went through every stage of grief. And then Thursday, I was like really stuck on the anger stage because I was like, this is some BS. And it's like, like until our society can fix this and speak true to it, like Asian community, the Black community, the Latinx community, like unless you're speaking truth to what's really going on, we can't properly heal from the trauma that has already been done. Like you're just creating more trauma. So... I don't know, you know, I mean, we'll see, you know, but I I am proud of like, you know, the one thing that I do know from having friends in the, you know, Asian community is um, that, you know, that often and even myself, you know, it's like you feel like a minority amongst minorities sometimes and often we suffer in silence, you know, Mm because it's like, who cares who wants to hear, you know, and then that became another dynamic too, like getting support from people and being emotional from that because we're not used to it, you know. Mm-hmm. It can be um, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I know. Like I know when all so this, uh, when all the Black Lives Matter movement started last year, and I had yeah. certain white individuals or strangers would come up to me, "What can we do to help?" I'm like, I am so confused. I've never had a white person come up and ask me <laughs> I know. that question You're before. Like, oh, Right. Yeah. This is, this then you feel like you got to figure it out so you can tell them next time they ask you. Like, right. uh, you might be the yeah. only person of color that they talk to or know. Uh, they don't even know me if they're strangers. Just trying to find some way to help. Maybe it's partly out of guilt. Yeah. 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 
So what were you hearing from your Asian friends right after the shooting? Were they afraid, emotional? Yeah, so I'm a part of uh, NAP, which is an Asian professional organization. So thankfully, they had a mental health check-in on Wednesday. And that was interesting because, like I just mentioned, support. And that was interesting because, you know, again, Monday, my company just had this amazing call. As emotional as it was, I was grateful for that. And then Wednesday, I'm getting on this call uh, and individuals are literally in tears talking about how some of the biggest corporations that are out there in Atlanta, not even acknowledging what's been going on in the Asian community, their coworkers, not even acknowledging what's been going on. And it starts from the top. So it's like, if your leaders are setting this, like, expectation of like, this is how we support each other as a company or as a company family or whatever, however you want to say it, um, then other people will follow suit. But like, if they're not seeing that from the top, then they're like, they, they're like, okay, I mean, I guess they're okay. I don't know. Cause Mm -hmm. we live in a culture where like, we don't talk about these things. And now we're talking about it where we don't know how to support or check on people. Now we're supporting and checking on people, you know, and it's just like, it's new for all of us. Like the people that are, are the victims or the oppressed and, you know, like vice versa, you know, so. Do you think that it's only occurs until violence is happens? A light is shown on the things that's been going on in the Asian community. And it only it's only on there now because an act of violence or you see Asian individuals getting hit out in the street for no reason, getting punched or getting kicked, that now a light is being shown. No, because that this has always been happening. And mm-hmm. like with the Asian community, like even the numbers as high as the percentages of what's being reported now. There's still so many families out there that and people that are in the community that aren't reporting it. And a lot of it isn't being reported as a hate crime because often sometimes like the police or or whoever's reporting it, they don't really know how to categorize it when it happens to Asian people. Like, okay, did this just happen because they own a business or because of whatever? Or is it really truly because they're Asian, you know? Mm Um, So sometimes it's hard to kind of identify whether or not to put it in that type of category. I think what you're seeing is like what happened last year in the Black community, like with racial injustice and George Floyd specifically, really. Well, and I'll tell you, even before George Floyd, I saw it with Ahmaud Arbery. And I because I remember going on different pages and seeing comments and it was like white people commenting and being supportive, which in all honesty, I've never seen like, not for real, not to the degree that I was seeing it then. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had somebody on my podcast, um, Gerald Griggs, who's the VP of the NAACP. And I was like, okay, is it just me? Or does it feel like more people besides Black people are being supportive of what's going on? And he was like, yeah, because when they would go to where Ahmaud Arbery was from, like everybody in the community was outraged and was like, this is not right. So I think like with that, then you saw what happened with George Floyd. And I think too, it's like, you know, and they say that cell phones are probably one of the best resources that has happened for, you know, racial injustice, because it's like before trying to take somebody's word and somebody could spin that narrative. But now it's like being able to actually see 
what is occurring. And sometimes in real time, you know, it's like, you can't deny that, you know, like when you have evidence and proof of like, this is occurring all the time. So I would say a lot of that kind of sparked that awareness to the point where it's like, now companies are more, you know, invested in their people of color, black employees, and like now Asian employees and like, how they can invest their dollars into communities or organizations that help against these injustices. Because, I mean, one, it's the right thing to do, but then two, it's their expectation from their shareholders. Like all their shareholders, stakeholders right now are looking at them and saying, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of like, it's the right thing to do. And then it's a lot of like, you know, it's like a business right thing to do, you know, at this time. And so you're hearing more conversations and discussions uh, when it comes to a lot of what's going on. And then, you know, it's like, I think for, you know, not everybody, you know, I, I feel like for the Black community, like a lot of people have been screaming, shouting that these things have been going on for a long time. But then, you know, there are some other people in the community that maybe haven't been as vocal. And it's like, now you've got strangers, co-workers asking you about it. And it's like really trying to figure out, you're trying to figure out this stuff on your own too. So it's like trying to have a conversation with somebody that has no clue. Mm -hmm. It's like, whoa, what do I even do with this? You know? And then you go to the Asian community that is like, you know, we're really not used to people asking us about what's going on and how are we doing? So it's like, this is totally new, you know? And it's like, us having to encourage each other, like when, you know, this, this is going on, we have to speak up. We have to share our stories. You know, we have to let people know that this is not right. Like what is going on? So I think what you're seeing now is a lot of people like really finding their voices and speaking out against what, you know, is now visually so in front of your face, you know, that it's like, at this point, like, it's just, is very hard to ignore, you know, on top of you've got a pandemic going on, you know? And, and I mean, I think we have to take advantage of this time because once everybody gets vaccinated, everybody's out, especially in Atlanta, kicking it, like people, I don't know, like, I'm really scared that people aren't going to care and be as invested, you know, in what's going on. So I definitely think that like now is the time to really, you know, make, try to make an impact in some mm -hmm. sort of way. How do we keep in people invested in the fight for to hate um, as far as what is Asian hating Asians and doing that? And, and also with the Black Lives Matter movement, how do we keep people invested and not this being put to the back burner. Because right after we had the Atlanta shooting, there was the Colorado shooting right after that. So it's like, okay, it's the next story. Like, we're, are we moving on, quote unquote, and not caring about this situation anymore? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the thing is, it's like we have to continue the conversations you know, as much as I do love people sharing their stories, so people have that exposure and they understand what people are going through, it's very traumatic too. So it's like at some point we have to get past like people having to relive their trauma to, all right, now you you should have enough stories and there are so many resources out there now. What are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, I think right now what you're seeing is a lot of conversation, 
you know, a lot of storytelling, which is great. Uh, I mean, you know, of course, I'm an advocate of storytelling because I wrote a book to, you know, try to share from that perspective. But then it's like, I think now it's like we really have to um, eventually lean into like, what are the actions, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think like being connected to both sides, um, like with the Black community, um, I do think there are so many great organizations that have taken that and really led the charge on like, this is what the Black community needs, like support our businesses, X, Y, Z. And I think, you know, for, and I'll say, when things were happening last year in the Black community and a lot of the discussions that I would hear, me personally, overwhelmingly, I heard from the Black community, listen, we've been trying to say this forever, like for once, will you be quiet and just listen to us? You keep asking us, how can I help? How can I listen? Listen to us and we will tell you. And I think now with the Asian community and a lot of what I'm hearing is right now at this moment, they just need support. So whether, and and different people need support in different ways, but at minimum, like reaching out and letting people know, like, listen, I support you. I'm here for you. Like, you know, and acknowledging what's going on. And I think like for, I'll just speak to myself personally, like we're kind of our, I am processing. And I, I see a lot of people in the community processing that piece of it. And, you know, um, again, there's so many great organizations when it comes to the Asian community also that, you know, they are trying to implement different laws, um, you know, when it comes to reporting hate crimes um, and it's like properly, you know, being reported and being able to put it in some sort of bill where, you know, Asians feel more protected when it comes to being attacked. So, I mean, those are are already in the works and in process, you know. Um, I, you know, I am seeing some of that happening for sure. But I would say, you know, a lot of what's going on right now is just like what we need is support. Uh, but what we're dealing with and, and trying to process is just like healing, you know, from the trauma of what's going on so we can be, you know, it's like prepared to take the action that we need to take to help our community. So to play devil advocate for a quick second, let's just, I'm going to go into character. Why should we support the Asian community? Like I'm part of the Black Lives Matter. Um, I have my own problems that I'm dealing with right now. I don't have enough energy or time to help the Asian community out or, oh, I'm Jewish. Like we've been hated on different aspects along multiple decades. We've got our own problems. Or, oh, I don't even know anyone Asian. Why should I care about the Asian community? Why why should people support you all? Right. And I would say because we all need each other. Like how much more effective could we be? Like what we're experiencing is the same, but in different ways. So how much more effective could we be if we united and we were in solidarity and trying to resolve these issues together? versus being separated, you know, and it's like, if anyone knows the history of this country, like it is very steeped in white supremacy and systems that have been built to divide us. Like when it comes to the model myth minority, like that is a complete false narrative that was only created to divide Asian, the Asian community and the black community. 
You know, it's like, okay, let's make up this narrative about Asian people so we can keep Black people in check. And it's like, it was not true, you know? So it's like, recognize where these divisions are really coming from. And it's like, again, if we can move in solidarity, the more impactful, the more issues and and things that we can get resolved versus like trying to do it separate. Like last year was a huge indicator of like the importance of allyship and advocacy, because it's like a lot of what happened in, you know, some bills that were being passed, what happened with like voting and the president that we currently have was because we all came together, you know, and, mm-hmm. and people were fed up and were like, this is, this is enough, you know, like if you can stand by and think that what is happening to different communities of people are okay. And, you know, like say, well, this is impacting my community. So like they're on their own. Good luck. It's like, then, you know, how do you expect other communities to be empathetic and sympathetic to your situation? And, and, you know, and it's like, I do hear people say, you know, the Asian community, like they don't support us. And that is, it depends on what you were exposed to, because I follow a lot of Black organizations for racial injustice, and I follow a lot of Asian organizations against racial injustice. And I've seen, like, when things were happening with Black Lives Matter, like, Asian people standing in solidarity with Black people. And it's like, for me, you know, of course I do. But then like the Asian friends that I have, they do. Otherwise, I would not be friends with them, you know? And then now it's like, um, I don't think Asian people are doing this, but I think it is like just that societal narrative. Like, well, are the Black people standing with you and this, this and that? And it's like, yeah, some of them are. But it's like, but that's not the issue. Like white supremacy is the issue, you know? Um, and that doesn't mean white people. It means white supremacists that want, they just want to be, you know, it, you know, and they could care less about everybody else. There are other white people, though, that they don't have those same values or mindsets, and they're very supportive, you know? So it's like, again, we have to know the history of like where this is coming from and what continues to divide us, you know? And if we keep falling into that trap, then we're going to continue to stay stuck exactly where we are. So that's what I'll say to that devil's advocate. (laughs) I am not the devil. I am not the devil. It is not me. I know. I said that devil's advocate. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So if this pandemic wouldn't have happened, do you think some of the issues that you talked about as far as racism against against Asians would have been brought to the forefront at all? Or if it would have just been a constant cycle that's kind of been going on? Well, yeah, I mean, part of the pandemic was the coronavirus, right? Or COVID. Mm -hmm. So it was really that narrative that was set uh, with calling it the China flu, the Kung flu that put this big target on our back. Has the target changed or has it gotten bigger or is it a bigger target that's different? It's just a more empowered target, Hmm. you know? So it's like, no, it hasn't changed at all. But now people feel more emboldened. They feel more empowered, you know, by one person that, you know, said these things or whatever. And they feel like, okay, well now 
you know what, like I can say whatever I want to, you know, this community of people. And, and I mean, often the expectation is throughout history, like we're not going to do anything. We're not going to say anything. But then, you know, you saw on the news, like that older Asian lady that mm-hmm. like, you know, like handled her business with that guy and he's on oh, a stretcher. Yeah. She's got a black eye and she's standing and like, he's in a stretcher crying or whatever. So it's like, you know, we're not here to like take that kind of stuff anymore, you know? Like, you just can't come at us the same way, like, back in the 1900s and think you're just going to get away with that and that's going to be okay. And, I mean, in some situations, people do get away with it, which is so unfortunate. But, again, you know, it's like that was a big purpose of me writing my book is, like, just how we're so quick to dehumanize other people. And it's like, and, you know, I talk about white supremacy, but it's like we all do that. You know, it's like we all fail to kind of see the humanity that other communities of people have um, because of other narratives that people have set or because we have one or two bad experiences from somebody in a community that is like that people are not monolithic. Like you can't hold one group of people to a to a standard, you know. And so it was like for me, it was like writing my book was like we have to start with ourselves and like the biases that we have against people because of our exposure and the experiences that we've had and really, you know, kind of check ourselves, you know, and, you know, if we want the same type of treatment, we have to be able to give that type of treatment, you know, and, and model the type of example of the human that we want to be to other people, you know, and, and listen, I'm not saying it's easy because like, I'm, I know I wrote it because I know I'm guilty of, of doing the same thing, you know, and it's like, sometimes I have to catch myself and be like, no, <laughs> like, you know, like I'm falling in that trap of, you know, like categorizing people based off of an experience or based off of the actions of like one or two people. And that that's just not fair to other groups of people that ha- would don't even subscribe to those type of, you know, behaviors, you know, and have completely different values that would probably more so align with your values more than you would know, you know? Right, right. And we know you only discriminate against FAMU, Southern, Grambling, those are the people that you probably Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So if you had to leave one final message, what would it be? Oh, one final message. That's a good question. I would probably say, uh, like, just like what I said, you know, before you start pointing the finger at other people and what they need to do and what they need to fix, like, what do you need to do? What do you need to fix to get right, you know, to be that humanitarian that you want all other people to be towards you and your community? You know, how do you get yours? Because it's like, you got to start here first. Like, Mm -hmm. we want to try to fix everybody else in the world. But like, but we've got all this stuff that's broken in us that doesn't allow us to fully embrace and humanize other people. So I would say, you know, definitely start with yourself. And then I think what we're, you know, uh, what I hear too, and hearing just so many more stories now, and, and not just in the Black community and not just in the Asian community, but just people in general, like we are all in some sort of way or fashion hurting, you know, and maybe not all the time. But I think as just people, we have to do a better job of like checking on each other and not just when 
something tragic happens and there's like a mass shooting or, you know, um, it's like people are going through some things that we don't even know about, you know, and it's like Mm -hmm. they're having to go to work every day, go to school every day with just heaviness on them. And it's like how much better, you know, it's like I just know how how grateful and how much better it made me feel to have people checking on me, you know, and even though it was like an extreme situation. But again, it's like we we go through different, you know, and I don't I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that looks like trying to check on people every day or whatever, or just uh, giving r- people, you know, room and grace and space to be able to say, listen, I'm having a bad day. Like, you know, when we ask people, how are you doing? Like allowing people to feel safe to the point where they could say, I'm not good, you know, and it's like trying to figure out, okay, and this person needs me in this moment, you know, what can I do to support you? You know, and it's like, you know, I don't know. I think if we're able to do that and make that connection with people and really let people know that we're there for them and and we're there to support them, like when they're hurting and they need us, I think it would make a world of difference because, you know, now we live in a, when I wrote my book, it was like, I just want people to feel okay to, to be who they are, to be accepted for who they are. And now we live in a world where people just want to be freaking safe to be who they are. And that's a whole nother solve for, you know? Do you so feel it's like, safe? No. <laughs> Do you? No, not all the time. Exactly. Yeah, not all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do we create safe spaces for people? And so that's something that I try to think about all the time. And I just encourage like your listeners to think about that too. Because again, there are people out there hurting. There are people that need people, you know, just that humanity kind of peace and compassion and empathy. How do you create safe spaces for other people just like you would want for yourself? True, true. I totally agree. Totally agree. Want people to feel comfortable in themselves and feel safe overall. For certain things, yeah. like we can't control our skin color. And that's an unfortunate part. My beautiful almond eyes. I can't control those people. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. mean, but I could say that now. But back in the day, I'm telling you, I used to hate my eyes. You know, I used to hate the shape of my lips because they were big, bigger than like my white friends, you know, and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my lips are so big. I hated that. Now but you've now embraced it. it and stuff. You got your, no, I got all your red lipstick, lipstick popping, got your I cool know. frames on. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. We're going to make exactly. sure to put, put this picture up. Like, look at her little cool frames. And stuff. <laughs> but I thank you for sitting down and talking. We're definitely going to bring you back so we can talk about your book. I'm going to read it again so I can awesome. be up to date on all the things. We can definitely talk about some 8-Ball and MJ, uh, MJG and other. Yeah, uh, what you know about that? <laughs> I know <laughs> all about Southern hip hop. But first, we're going to bring you back for Randy's Random Questions. Oh, Oh, okay. oh yeah. Uh-huh. We're going to put you on a hot seat for that. So let's see. I got a deck of cards over here, and we're going to shuffle the deck of cards. Oh, you got cards for real. They're official. Yeah, these little $12 cards. Yes. (laughs) So question number one, what is something you get wrong almost every time you do it? If it's like making some type of recipe 
or if it's driving uh, somewhere, you get lost, like bad sense of yeah. directions. What is something that's like you you lose your keys all the time? Like, where are my keys? What is something you get wrong every time you do it and you frustrated at yourself? Yeah, so I don't do it anymore. But like, you know, when you go on Publix and those little ladies are making those recipes mm-hmm. and they got this like one little hot stove burner and they make it look super easy and they're like, oh my God, yeah, it's so easy. And like, here are all the ingredients, just buy it. Mm-hmm. I always do it. I always fall for it because I'll taste it. I'm like, this seems so easy. And like, it's so good. Every time I make one of those recipes, it's like an epic fail. And so, yeah, I just don't even do it anymore. Okay. So, so yeah, go to I stay away from for public recipes. Right. No, don't do it. All right. So what's movie character? This can be animation or real movie character made you want to fight them after you watched them in the movie? Like they irritated you so much that you almost jumped out your chair to the screen or to the TV when you were watching the movie that you're like, oh, I just can't stand this character in this movie. Yeah, Tariq on Power. Like, uh, I'm like, what? why are they not whooping his little behind? I just don't <laughs> understand. Like, what is going on right now? So yeah, he just like, irritated the crap out of me and I was just waiting for somebody to hem him up but it just never happened and I'm like that's what's wrong with him now they didn't whoop him enough when he was younger so So what irritated you the most about Tariq his lack of loyalty toward for his father and just Mm -hmm. like the decisions he would make like just very selfish decisions but then you know but then I ended up watching the spinoff and then Mm -hmm. I hated him less, I guess, you know, um, and then you, they kind of painted him more to be like his father in a sense. But yeah, it was like just the stupid decisions he would make. And then, then all of the, the stupid decisions he would make and the consequences that they would have. And especially like when his sister got shot, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> like, I'm just I know who you are, Ray Ray. Like, no, shed a tear. (laughs) A couple of scenes later, teach me the game, ghost. And you just got Uh, to I know. I'm like, boy, go sober and sit down. Like, I'm like, I can't even. If you haven't watched it, it's too late. Too late. Yeah. Years behind if you don't know that part (laughs) right now. All right. If you could jump into a pool full of something, what would it be? It'd be a pool full of wine full of dessert, books, money. You pick whatever you want to jump into a pool of and what would it be? Yeah, so the first thought was money. So yeah, for sure. And then I get to take it all with me. (laughs) Yep. Just jump in a pool full of big faces. That's right. Do the backstroke. (laughs) Yep, I'm here for it. All right. Last question. You're at a party. You're talking to someone. Y'all just having a casual conversation. And this song comes on, you will leave that person and run to the dance floor to dance to this <laughs> song. What song would that be? I'm so embarrassed to say this, but it just made, I don't know, like any two live crew song. <laughs> I was not I just, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Like, I don't know. It's just something about like Uncle Luke, two live crew, like. And not that I can dance like that, but like I get real hype. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I can't explain it. I can't explain it. So if drop beat coming, starts playing, you you are running. Running, running, <laughs> pushing people over. 
Oh, Move, man. that's my song. Oh, Lord. Seawalk and Cindy <laughs> out there, the two live crew doing the seawalk. Man, y'all watch out for it. If y'all in Atlanta, want you to watch open out. back up. Watch out, somebody. watch out. I know, but that's the thing. I don't do any of those dances, but like, yeah, I'm going to like, yeah, like you could put me in a professional setting and that song comes on, like it's a wrap. Like I'm exposed. My right side <laughs> is fully exposed. Like I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm probably going to get fired tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to let you off the hot seat. Um, we're going to play some two live crew going out. We got to get these sample clearances first. Then that's we'll, right. That's right. We'll make sure to send you the video. But shout out to your Instagram stuff if you want to. Let everybody know where to find you at. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Please stay in touch with me. My Instagram is Asian underscore Southern underscore Bell. My book is Too Much Soul. So I have a website, toomuchsoul.com. And my book has its own Instagram page, Too Much Soul underscore book. So please stay in touch with me. Yeah, y'all make sure to stay in touch with her. And she has some cool merchandise on her website as well. So you can get one of her cool shirts. We'll make sure to post that on my page so y'all can see it. But once again, Sydney, thank you for sitting down and talking to me. Thank you, Dr. Randy. Being an Asian American in this day and age is truly dangerous. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Asians are being assaulted or unfortunately murdered sometimes. America has to do better. I know since I recorded this interview, there has been at least three mass shootings. There was even an incident at a grocery store that I have shopped at frequently in which there was a person in the bathroom with a gun and putting on their vest. Man, it's crazy. America is turning into the wild, wild west. It's unfortunate that these things have become the norm. Mass shootings and seeing people get assaulted on video should not be normal. Love should be the norm. Let's love each other no matter what color a person is. I hope you have all learned something from Cindy. Make sure you follow her on our social media platforms and pick up her book, Too Much Soul, on Amazon. I hope you have learned something from me as well about what it takes to become a physician. The last part I'll mention about is the match process. The match process is a process where you find out which residency program you're matched to. Hence, that's why it's called the match. It's a crazy process. Let's use myself as an example. When applying to family residency program, let's just say I apply to 20 residency programs. I'm just gonna throw out that number just as an example. All of these programs may not like me or my application. Inserts here. Oh, so sad. I may get 10 interviews. Let's just say I got 10 interviews in this example. After going on those interviews, I rank each place that I had an interview at. I can rank as many as I want to. I can rank all 10 of those places or I can only rank three. And I'll put those choices in a computer system. It's my choice how many I want to pick. So I can pick two, I can pick 10, I can pick eight. It's just all what I want to pick. I may have not liked that program at all. So I may not want to rank that program. The residency programs also rank the people they interviewed with them. They can even choose to not rank people as well. They may have interviewed someone who had a great application, but find out on the interview that that person was crazy or didn't deserve to be a doctor or just didn't fit with their program. 
It's like going on a bad first date. Their dating profile may have looked good, but then you find out they have an Apple phone. I'm team Android over here. I don't care about you Apple people. I don't care if my texts come in a different color. That's, that's a you problem. That's not a me problem. So team Android over here. But anyways, after you rank your residency programs and the schools rank the interviewees, the information goes into a computer system that matches you into a residency program. The goal is to match people with the residency program they want to go to and the program that essentially wants them. So a good fit for both people. A person can get into their top choice or they can get into their fifth choice, depending on how many schools that they ranked and how the computer system matches them up. It all depends on how you rank a program and how that program ranks you. Isn't that crazy? That is some crazy stuff right there. We're depending on computer systems and how I'm ranking a school and how that school is ranking me. Some people are happy when they find out where they match to. They may have got their top choice, but some people, they may cry that day when they find out where they're going. They might have been their lowest choice or they may find out that they didn't match at all. And that's a whole nother game plan that you have to find out where you're going to go to for residency if you didn't match in that process. Y'all have no idea what we go through over here to become physicians. Well, now you do because you listen to On Call with Dr. Randy. Thanks for listening. Oh, that sound is so cheesy. <laughs> but thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and share with others. Next week, I'll be talking about financial literacy with one of my frat brothers. This month is Financial Literacy Month, and I want all of you healthy people to be financially literate. So are you going to talk about how to write checks? No, inner voice. I'm not teaching people how to read and write checks. Who's still writing checks out there? I know one of y'all still writing checks, probably to give to somebody cutting the grass or something, but it's time to step it up a little bit, use some technology. But anyways, I'll see you all next week or not literally see you all, but um, I'll be here for you to listen to next week. And as always, let's say it all together now. Stay healthy physically and mentally. Y'all have a great week.